Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. If y'all have y'all's Bible and you want to open up to Psalm 138, that's where we're going to be today. Psalm 138. And we're going to be talking about uh, David's dependence, David's dependence on the Lord. Okay, so Psalm 138, and we don't know for sure when this psalm was written, but almost certainly it was sometime between uh, 2 Samuel 5, chapters 5 and chapter 7. Okay, really after, after Saul has died and David has been made the king. And so Early in his reign, you're probably familiar with this, David was very successful in the beginning. He goes from strength to strength. He's conquering all of Israel's enemies. He's bringing peace. Other kings come and honor him. They make alliances with him. Um, And so one of the dangers when you're being successful in the Lord's work, whether that's ministry directly or something else, is it can go to your head. And and there's different ways that it can go to your head. We're going to look at that. And it can lead to sin. One way would be just kind of the outright prideful way that basically says, I did this. I worked hard, I earned this, look at the works of my hands um, that Nebuchadnezzar did, and that didn't turn out too well for him. But the other way is a type of presumption that says, yes, God did this, but you know what, that's just God's job. That's God's job to bless me. So yes, God gets the credit, but it's not really that big of a deal, because secretly there's still something in your heart kind of saying, I deserve this. Uh, This is just what God does in the universe, and there's not the proper sense of adoration and worship and kind of holy awe. I remember hearing a, a sermon by Tim Keller one time, and he said, there ought to be a sense if somebody says to you, are you a Christian, that you almost ought to say, yes, I am. It's shocking. I almost can't believe it. Uh, but yeah, I, by God's grace, I have been saved. There should never be this sense of, of course I'm a Christian. Uh, why would you ever doubt that I'm a Christian? There ought to be this humble sense of awe and shock and almost this kind of laughing, glad joy that I can't believe it, but yes, God has done this in me. Okay, so early on, David was very successful in his life, and he avoided both of these ditches, so to speak, of the presumption and of the pride, and we want to see how he did that. Okay, so the first point would be this, just past praise. Praise for all that God has done in the past. Let's read the first three verses. Psalm 138, verse 1. I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down to your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word according to all your name. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. Okay, so when David became king, many joined his side. Like I said, many came and were giving him honor. They were giving him credit, and that's not a bad thing. We see a, a human being doing their best, doing good. There's a right way to thank them, to praise them, to honor them. Obviously, they're not the Lord. Um, but there's a right way to say, hey, you worked hard, and, and you deserve some thanks and some praise and some credit here. But there's some danger in that. And we need to be aware of that danger when people are giving us that kind of thanks and praise, maybe when we've helped them or we've been successful in ministry or whatever it may be. Now, David, David handles it really well. But part of this is based on his past life that we've been looking at all these different psalms. David wasn't lusting after the throne. He wasn't desperate in a sinful way demanding God. It's got to happen right now. He was patient. It didn't go to his head. It seemed like David kind of had that shock. I can't believe I get to be the king's son-in-law. I can't believe God anointed me from the sheepfold to be the next king. He did, and I'm not backing away. I mean, that, that would be another sinful thing to say, no, there's no way it can be true. He embraced what God was doing, 
but he but he held it open-handedly. He didn't get attached to it. He didn't get addicted to it. He didn't become emotionally needy like, I have to have this right now. He was patient. He trusted God's character. I remember when I was younger, probably in high school at some point, um, and, and first kind of getting involved in like even just being like a little leader in my youth group as a student leader. And, you know, you do something and something go well. And, and my dad gave me this advice, and it's been very helpful. He said, listen, if you ever are getting praise and credit for something and you, and you think there's a temptation that it might go to your head, one of the things you ought to do is maybe get alone in a room and literally like lay down on your face, prostrate, and in a sense just say, God, all of this credit, all this praise, all this glory that's been given to me, I'm giving it back to you. Now, you don't literally have to go get prostrate all the time, but I think it's more the attitude of your heart being prostrate before the Lord and saying, God, thank you. I'm, I'm glad for the positions you've given me. I'm glad for the prestige. I'm glad for the influence, for the, for the ministry fruit. I'm glad that it's joyous to be involved, but I never want to take credit. I always want to, if people are giving it to me, I want to give it right back to you, Okay. And listen, David wasn't just going through the motions. It was like his whole body was responding to God. Okay, look at, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I sing praises to you before the other gods. Now, what does he mean in front of other gods? Not 100% sure. Two different things it can mean. One, it could mean in front of the angels. Sometimes in the Old Testament, angels get referred to almost like little G gods, like these little divine beings. You know, they're, they're not divine. They're not actually God, but they're more uh, spiritually minded than we are, and they're in the heavenly places. That may mean what David is doing, kind of like I'm joining the heavenly host, giving you praise. More likely what it means is, if you go read the story in 2 Samuel, we won't do it now, but it's when he really routes the Philistines, almost like at a once-and-for-all battle. And it's so bad, they leave their idols behind. Okay, now remember, there had been a time uh, before David was king when Israel had been defeated by the Philistines and they left the Ark of the Covenant behind. But when the Philistines left their idols behind, David take David's men take all these idols and they burn them. And they basically are saying, all the other gods are false. They're not real gods. They don't survive. Uh, and God, you are the one true God. You're not a tribal deity. Okay, You're the real thing. So I can loudly, boldly proclaim who you are. If, if there's one area in life that we ought to be boasting, it's in the Lord our God. Okay, Now, verse 2, he says, I will bow down towards your holy temple. So this is not just private praise. Lord, this, this is public praise. I'm going to go to church. Okay, I'm going to sing with the assembly. But look at the second part of verse 2. It's strange. I've got the New American Standard here. It says, you have magnified your word according to all your name. And there's some translations that even say, you have magnified your word over your name. Now, what exactly does this weird kind of phrase mean? It probably means the ideas of this. I mean, sometimes if we know a human being who's a man of integrity or a woman of integrity, somebody we really trust, we really respect. I mean, they're the kind of person uh, that when they make a vow, they always keep it. You know, Psalm 15 talks about swears and keeps it even to his hurt, right? Even when it hurts me. We say he's a man of his word. She's a woman of her word. Well, in a sense, this is David saying about God, he's a God of his word. When he makes a promise, he always 100% fulfills it. You can trust his word as much as you can trust the fact that he exists, Right? Hebrews eleven six. Anyone that comes to God must believe that He is and that He's the rewarder of those that seek Him. He's a faithful God. He always keeps His word. It's always true. You can always trust Him. Okay? Even if it hurts Him, when God makes a promise to us, He's going to keep it. He's so faithful. Okay? Now, verse 3. This David's saying, listen, I've just got this pattern in my life. Remember, he's looking back. He's praising God for the past. He's saying, God, I have a pattern in my life that when I pray, you answer me. Now, in this 
psalm, which is poetry, he says, on the day I called you, answered me. Now, if we were sitting there when David was writing this, we might say, you know, David, technically, that was a long time you were praying for God to deliver you from Saul, and it didn't exactly happen on the same day, right? It took years. But what is David saying now that he's experienced the final fruit of of some of those prayers? He's like, I know that God all those days was listening to me. And if he delayed giving me the answer experientially, that must mean it was better for me to have to suffer through all that time. That's what we have to believe about God's character. It's not like, God, that you delayed an answer me. It's not like you didn't hear me. I know you were hearing me. And in some sense, you were answering me even in that day. But you knew in all of your wisdom and all of your you know, uh, knowledge of the future and knowledge of my sinful heart what would be best for me, that I needed to wait, I needed to struggle, I needed to suffer to be refined, to be humble, to be made into the right man, to be the king. Okay. Now, I love this second phrase here. You made me bold with strength in my soul. All those years of waiting... All those years of suffering and struggle and internal wrestling, God made me bold with strength in my soul. Matthew Henry said, he made me stout-hearted. Alex Moorier says, he invigorated me. I mean, he's talking about internal stamina. He's talking about spiritual strength. What does he specifically mean? Probably he means the spiritual stamina to be faithful to God, to not give in to the temptation to kill Saul, and to wait, to be patient. I mean, the first key in handling success and answer prayer the right way, guys, is you pause and you praise. You look back on all God's past faithfulness and you praise Him, okay? But you don't stop there. Second point, you go into future praise. Future praise. Look at verse 4. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth, and they will sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Now David speaks aloud, his praise to God, and other people are drawn to worship. And this should be true of us too. They should see our life, they should hear our words, and that should move them to want to praise the one true God and King. There probably were some other kings, maybe one or two, not many, that heard about who David was and the way God had blessed him that ended up worshiping God because of that, okay? But if you go read 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 23, we won't do it not right now, but it shows that in Solomon's day, a future day, David's son, there were many kings that sought Solomon's wisdom that kind of came and said, there's something unique about this king and there's something unique about the God of this king. But this prophecy really goes much further than that to the true son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 11, when one day, literally, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is king. I mean, David probably doesn't see all the way that far into the future, but the Holy Spirit in him does, impends those words. Okay? It's, listen, not just does my God rule the whole planet, he rules all time, all history, the past, the present, and the future. He's conquered now, he's conquered in the past, and he will continue to reign for all eternity. If that's true, and it is, it ought to bring gigantic confidence to us, even in the face of whatever hardship you might be facing. Okay, we Looking back at all God's past faithfulness ought to lead to future hope. Adonai Judson, the great missionary, okay, who took to the gospel to some very hard reaching places, and, and if you read some of his story about imprisonment, and he's translating the Bible, and then the whole translation gets lost, he has to start over, and he went through terrible suffering, family members dying, I mean, lots of pain, lots of hardship, but he has this famous quote where he says, the future is as bright as the promises of God. 
What defines my hope for the future is not the struggle that I might be going through right now, but it's the Word of God, the promises of God. So I think I've said this in this class before, but I'll say it again. We've all heard the phrase, I would imagine, preach the gospel yourself, and that's so true, it's so important. But even a more personalized way is that preach your own history to yourself. Remind yourself of the real specific things that God has done in your story to get you where you're at. And it's life-giving. It's empowering. It's motivating. Okay? Now look at verse 5. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Okay? Um, God's glory is so high, so lofty, so expansive, so eternal, it's worthy to sing. I was praying uh, with a group of men recently, several of whom were in ministry, and uh, one of the guys was praying for the different ministries we work for. And one of the things he said is, God, give us the success in ministry that makes you famous. And that's a great prayer. God, we do want some fame from our ministry, but not for ourselves. We don't want to be famous. We want you to be famous. We want you to be honored. We want you to be glorified. Okay. Now look at verse 6. I really love this verse. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. I mean, God sits in a high and a lofty place, and yet he loves humble people. He likes humble people. He enjoys lowly people. He likes to draw near to them. He likes to bless them. I mean, David felt this in his bones. Think about in Psalm 8 where he's like, what is man that you're mindful of him, that you, that you made him in your image, but then you, you think about him, you care about him, you get involved, you listen to his prayers, that you really, in a sense, you love him and you lavish him so richly. Okay? I was sharing the gospel with a guy that's been a couple years ago, and he grew up in the southeast, but he grew up in a very non-Christian, kind of liberally-minded home. Um, and as I was explaining to him the gospel, and he, and he had a ton of sin in his life. And, you know, you've met people like this that they've done all these bad things because they kind of believe, yeah, you know, there's no, there's no such thing as rules. But God's word, to some degree, is written on their heart. His image is imprinted there. And there's a sense of conviction and shame. And as I'm explaining to him, yes, because of what Christ did in his life, his death, his resurrection, you can be totally forgiven. The slate can be wiped totally clean forever in the cosmic courtroom of the universe. He literally just kept kind of shaking his head with a smile saying, this is too good to be true. This is too good to be true. It's like, yes, it sounds like it's too good to be true. But that's how glorious our God is, that it really is true. Okay, now, um, think about this. God, God loves to draw near to the lowly. But the proud, he knows from afar. He, in a sense, he stiff arms them. He doesn't want intimacy with them. Think about how arrogant it is when somebody's like, look at all that my hands have created. I don't need God. I'm a self-made man. I mean, even just think about, okay, I mean, I think I've used an illustration in here of playing uh, driveway basketball before with all my kids when they were younger. Now, you know, a couple of them could definitely beat me. But when they were younger and I could dominate on the court, Okay? If we were going out on a Sunday afternoon to have some family basketball, and maybe one of my older sons is like, hey, Dad, you know, you can be on the other kid's team. We don't need you. We're still going to dominate y'all. And he's just running his mouth, and he's making fun of me. He's making fun of the younger kids. I mean, what does that engender in my heart is I'm going to have to put him in his place. I'm going to have to humble him. I'm going to swat every shot that he takes. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to foul him probably more than once, but I'm going to make sure when he walks off the court, there's some humility and his mouth has been shut. Whereas if we're going out to driveway basketball and my sweet little daughter is, Daddy, I'm scared. I don't think I can pray against my brothers. They're going to be big. They're going to be mean. They're going to win. What happens in my heart? I'm drawn to her. I want to help her. I was like, baby, no, no, no. We're going to dominate them. Don't worry. I'm going to come to your side. I'm going to help you. I'm going to bless you. 
Okay, so listen, when there's pride in our heart, I really only think there's two responses that God has. One is he brings pain and hardship into our lives to crush us, to humble us, so that he can draw us back to a place of grace and repentance and neediness. Now, listen, that's a blessing, but it's a severe blessing. It's a hard blessing, but it's a blessing nonetheless. Because the second way that God can respond is worse. And it seems like this is the way that he responded to Saul in some sense. He can just leave them momentarily with their pride and their success. And they become hard. They become dead. They become alone. And ultimately, they go to hell. And they suffer for all eternity for their pride. So, I mean, just just pause for a second. If you ever notice a tiny bit of pride coming up in your heart, maybe you're playing around with some sin and you're not as convicted as you should be, and you realize this is a prideful attitude that I think I can just sin with impunity and get away with it. One of the things you ought to pray is, God, humble me. Humble me quickly. Do whatever it takes because I want to experience your presence, your blessing, intimacy, joy, and I know that you give that to the lowly and not to the haughty. Okay? So there's past praise. Then there's future praise for what's coming. Even the good that's coming, I'm hopeful and I'm giving God the credit for that. But then the third point is there's future faithfulness. Okay, and here's what I mean by this. Look at verses 7 and 8. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. So he's saying, God, you're going to do your part, and by your grace, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to try to walk in faithfulness. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Okay, How can we be so sure that God will keep blessing us? Past performance is the best predictor of future performance. Just think about on your campus ministry team. Let's say you had two brand new staff coming on staff this, this semester. And uh, one of them was pretty lazy. They overslept a lot. They forgot a lot. They never returned emails. They didn't go to campus that much. When they did, they just kind of hung out with their friends. They already knew. They weren't bold. They didn't meet non-Christian. They, just, they did a ton of bad stuff. I mean, they, they just they weren't a good staff. The other guy works hard, he's up early, he's praying, he's spending time with God, he's going to campus, he's meeting students, he's being bold, he's initiating, he's taking risks, he's sharing his faith, he's seeing people come to Christ, he's being humble, he's giving the glory to God. And then at New Year's conference, you realize your campus director is leaving, you've got to promote one of these guys to campus director. And the guy that's been kind of lazy and forgetful and not doing a hard work, he's like, no, make me the campus director. I really, I want it, I think I'm built for it, I got the gifts, I know my last semester was, just, you just trust me. I mean, if, if Listen, if you're a halfway objective leader, what you're going to realize is the best predictor of the future, I'm not a prophet, I don't know the future, but the best predictor of the future is past performance, past faithfulness, or past faithlessness. Now, I'm not talking about leadership right now. That's not my primary goal. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the character of God. When we look back on God's past performance and how faithful he has been, that ought to swell our hearts with joy, with confidence, with with boldness. You made me bold with strength in my soul. He did it once, he's going to do it again. I mean, which one of us, okay, when I get into class today and we do a little Q&A, if I say, who would like to give a testimony of God's unfaithfulness? Who would like to give a testimony of how God blew it in your life? Who would like to give a testimony of how God dropped the ball? Now, All of us might have a situation right now that we're in the midst of that's painful and it's hard and we don't understand and we don't know why God's doing this way. But if we say, no, no, you got to rewind at least five years. And then you got to tell a story that's already been closed and it's just like, yeah, God blew it. I I don't think any of us wants to do that. 
because we realize when we see the whole story, God's faithful. I mean, remember David, when he went to go kill Goliath, he could say, God, help me kill a lion. God, help me kill a bear. Goliath is no problem. And now he could say, ruling this nation, with God's grace, I'll be faithful, and God will bless the work of my hands. Saul's more complicated. It took years to accomplish, but even now Saul's dead. Listen, David is not a prosperity gospel guy. He's not saying it's all going to be easy. It's not all going to be kicks and giggles, and you're just going to go from one success to the other. There will be valleys of the shadow of death, times when you think you're going to die, times when you might want to die. But in the long run, when you take the big picture, the long view, God is going to win. Okay, He knows. Look at verse 7. Okay, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, he knows I'm probably going to have trouble again. But God, you'll deliver me. You will revive me. You will give me the strength. You will give me the spiritual vitality to be able to do it. He's not in the ditch of pessimism, Okay, that a lot of times we like to call realism. Nor is he in the ditch of naivete, that sometimes we like to call optimism. Okay? He's what I would call an optimistic realist. An optimistic realist. Now, kind of a famous example of this, some of y'all may have heard of before, I'll mention very briefly, this guy named Admiral Stockdale. Okay? He was in a uh, North Vietnamese prison camp during the Vietnam War, I think for eight years. And I think if I remember right, he was tortured over 20 times. And when he was interviewed later about his time, he, he told the interviewer, he said, do you want to know the people that never made it, that didn't survive in the prison camps? And I said, yeah. He said, it was the optimist, which kind of sounds counterintuitive. What do you mean the optimist? The people that were always saying, I know the war will be over by Christmas. If we can just hang on till Christmas, then the war will be over and everything will be fine. Or the people like, well, maybe next Easter they'll do a prisoner exchange. Surely we'll be out by next Easter. It can't go longer than that. Because most of them went insane. They couldn't handle the pressure. They couldn't handle the torture of what they were going through. And he kind of came up with this principle. He said, what you have to do is you have to confront the brutal facts of how bad it's going to be. And you may not even know how bad it's going to be, but you have to be brutally honest with yourself, objective about the pain, the torture, the hardship that's coming. But then you have to never lose hope. (laughs) that in the end, you will prevail. Now listen, I don't know if he was a Christian or not. And I don't know how if you're not a Christian, you can say, I never lose hope that I'll prevail. But if you're a Christian, you can't say that. I might have a miserable, hard, painful, suffering life. I may stumble and fall. But in the end, by God's grace, I will prevail. God will make sure that I win because I'm on his team. God was going to destroy all of David's enemies, and protect David as he always had done. And he did do it. Okay, um, Again, look there. It says, your right hand will save me. The right hand was the hand of strength, the, strength, the, 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 the uh, sign of honor. You're at my right hand. God was saying, I love you, David. I like you. I honor you. I'm going to protect you with all my strength. Now, verse 8, I love this first phrase. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Think about that guy. I mean, listen, you can meditate on that little phrase right there, and you can get a lot of miles out of that. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. If you're in Christ, the Lord will accomplish what concerns you. He has good plans for all his people. We don't know all the details, but he does, right? And that's what's important. He knows down to every molecule that's going to have to move to make these plans happen. He knows the timing, and he is going to hit on all cylinders perfectly. He's going to accomplish his perfect plan for me. I don't have to do it. All his purposes will 
be accomplished. So what does that do to David and what should it do to us? A deep internal rest. I mean, almost this whole prayer in one sense has been praise and thanks and confidence and hope, but David doesn't stop there. At the end, he moves this kind of desperate clinging prayer of dependence. Okay, do not forsake the work of your hands. And let's just be honest for a second. At first glance, the last phrase of the psalm, it almost seems like it's out of place, right? You want to be like, uh, and th- this is where sometimes you'll get some of these liberal scholars that'll say, well, this actually must be two different uh, authors and two different psalms that got blended later. Because It's like the whole psalm is this confidence, is this praise, is this happiness, is this joy, is this everything's great, God's been answering, God's been... But then at the very end, he's like, oh God, please don't forsake me. What is this, guys? Like I said, he's an optimist realist. He's real about the pain and suffering that's going to come in the world. And he's also real about the sin that still lives in his heart. And so he realizes, God, there's no flaw in you, but there's a lot of flaws in me. And so, God, even though I know all the truth, and right now I'm in a happy moment, I feel the truth. I'm singing, I'm praising, I'm writing poetry, I'm writing scripture. It doesn't get any better than that. I know, God, there will be other days where I'll be weak, I'll be fearful. I'll be doubting. I'll be worried. And God, don't forsake me. Draw near. Okay, now, I think all of us on this call, okay, we've all experienced some of God's blessings in life. And all of us want to experience more of God, more of His blessings today and in the future. So how should we respond to this reality? Again, I think there are two main ways that human beings left to themselves tend to think about it, two sinful ditches, so to speak. One is what I would call prideful, man-centered proactivity. I mean, this would be the legalist. The the line underneath that is, it's all up to me. The main way I got here is because I'm smart, I'm good, I'm godly, I worked hard, blah, blah, blah. And the main way I'll stay here and the main way I'll advance, it'll be my effort, my sweat, my blood, my tears. Prideful, man-centered proactivity. That's a bad way to live. But if you swing the pendulum all the way to the other side, there's another ditch on the other side of the road that I'd call presumptive, God-centered passivity. It's not really God-centered, but but there's a veneer of God-centeredness that you can put on. You say, well, you know, God's a good God. He's so great. He's so faithful. He's so generous. He's so loving. doesn't really matter what I do. God just blesses everyone. That's just kind of his job. That's his attitude. So I don't need to worry about it. He'll handle it. I can just chill. If I get into a little sin, no big deal. And this would be the classic antinomian, lawless person. Now, the first perspective leads to a lot of driven, disciplined, hard work. That can be good. But the problem is it always results in anxiety. Because the burden for my happiness and success is on my back. And there will be this crushing sense. Deep down, you may only tell it to your best friends, but deep down you'll feel like I'm a failure. It's never enough. Even my best isn't good enough. You ever felt that? But the second perspective, right, the presumptive God-centered passivity, you know what it leads to? Apathy, laziness, because God's going to do it all anyway, so why don't I just chill on the couch some more and eat some Cheetos and watch TV, right? You you tend to be too easy on yourself. I'm doing great. I'm doing fine. There's a lot of people out there doing worse than me. At least I'm not doing big, bad, scandalous sins like them. You tend to give yourself a pass. But both of these are wrong. They're sinful responses towards the past blessings of God and the desire for future Blessings. I've got a friend, works at Campus Outreach, great guy. But he's told me at many different times that in his life what he sees is he swings between anxiety and apathy. 
oh no, the fall's about to start. I'm not planned enough. I'm not prepared enough. He stays up late. He's worried. He's racked. He's planning. He's working. There's anxiety. And so at some point, he just gets to where I can't handle it anymore. And so what he does is he says, I start thinking about God's sovereignty. Now, that's a good thing. But he says, in some sense, I go way too far. I'm like, you know, God's sovereign. What I do really doesn't matter anyway. I just need to chill. And I'm just going to like check out for maybe a week, you know. And he just goes to total apathy. Again, both of these are bad ditches, okay. And what tends to happen is when you're in the pride, uh, man-centered, proactivity, you tend to be way too hard on yourself. It's never good enough. And when you're in the presumptive so-called God-centered passivity, you're not hard enough on yourself. You're not honest about your responsibility. Okay, you're too easy on yourself. But how can we strike a biblical balance, right, of I'm working hard for God and I'm resting hard in God? It can't be man-centered activity, nor can it be so-called God-centered passivity. It has to be this God-centered activity. It's not pride, it's not presumption, but it's proactive dependence. Now you say, that sounds really great, Olin, uh, but you know, practically, what in the heck does that mean? Okay. In my experience, the main way that this practically fleshes itself out in your life is it's your prayer life. And let me just explain what I mean by that. Prayer is the most obvious place of trust and dependence in God, right? faith in God. And here's what I mean. Almost everything else we do in life, even in ministry, okay, it makes some logical sense that if I do this thing long enough, hard enough, good enough, that there will be some positive fruit, right? I mean, if it makes logical sense that if I go and have a conversation with a non-Christian and I logically try to explain to them the gospel, that maybe they will hear it and say, well, that does make sense, and I have read some history books, and I've heard of Jesus, and I'm understanding. It makes some logical sense. They'll hear, they'll understand, they'll believe, Right? Even if you're not in ministry, let's say you're a salesman or something, it makes some sense if you go to work and you work hard, but you're nice and you're respectful and you're kind and you're gentle with people and they like you, they may say, okay, I'll listen to you, I'll buy your product, right? If Put it into marriage, okay? If I'm nice, if I'm kind, if I'm forgiving, if I'm patient with my spouse, it makes sense. She will like me. She will respond nicely to me. All those, there's some logical sense, but just think about this. It makes absolutely no logical sense if God doesn't exist, that if I go in my room and shut the door and pray to my Father who is in secret and no other human being on the planet even can hear me or knows what I'm doing, it makes no sense that things are going to change, that people's hearts are going to change, that results are going to change. The only way that makes sense is if God is real and He really does hear and He really does care and He really does answer. And so guys, prayer for me is the place where this proactive dependence really comes to life. That they, I mean, prayer oftentimes can be hard work. There's repetition. Sometimes it can be monotonous. Like I prayed for the same thing yesterday, God, but I'm praying here again because it hadn't happened yet, so I'm trying to lay it out. Sometimes it, it, there is a sense of blood, sweat, and tears, working, wrestling in prayer, okay? And a regular, disciplined prayer life. There's work that goes to that. But it's also the kind of proactive dependence I'm throwing it all on God's back. If you don't show up, if you don't come through, all of my efforts the rest of today are going to be a waste of time, God. So it's desperate daily dependence. A clinging to God in prayer with all your might. So we're about to start the fall. A lot of us, I think, freshmen move in next week. Okay, Some of them may already have been moving in. 
How's your prayer life? How's your personal prayer life? Even for people in full-time ministry, this is sad, but it's true. It's often one of the first things to go, right? Because if I quit doing the other stuff, people will notice. If I quit doing my prayer life, nobody really notices. And guys, it's like a litmus test on your heart. Why are you doing the good things you do? Is it really for your father who sees in secret that rewards you in secret? Or are you doing it in order to be seen by others, in order to be praised by others? Now, what's the real key to all this? Okay. Part of what's so great about prayer is it reminds us of how small, tiny, weak, needy, frail, fragile, sinful we are and how hopeless we are without God. But in the exact same instant, it's reminding us how high, how holy, how strong, how loving, how condescending in a good way God is that He likes to bend down near to the lowly and help them. You know, the greatest example of God doing this is the Lord Jesus Christ, literally getting up off of His throne, laying aside some of His divine privileges, and coming to the earth to seek and to save the lost, even in the depths of our sin. And look, guys, even in his humanity, how he modeled this proactive dependence. I mean, he was such a man of, of working and ministry, right? Staying up late. The crowds kept coming. Even when he wanted to kind of take a vacation and get away with the disciples and the crowds following, he said, well, I guess we'll just have to do some more ministry. He was pouring himself out literally, waking up early to go pray, to go to different towns. Okay? But how often he was pausing, giving credit to the Father, talking about abiding in the Father, talking about being one with the Father praying before many of his miracles to give the Father credit. Okay? I mean, he modeled this kind of dependence for us. Now, none of us are as dependent in prayer as we ought to be. But Christ lived this sinful pattern, I mean, sinless pattern for us as a model, but more important, as our Savior. I mean, we can look to him and say, he's the true David, and I want to model him. I want to fall, you know, follow in his footsteps. But there's also this sense that even in the death of Christ, there was this sense of dependence. Into thy hands I commit my spirit, Father. I'm doing all my work for you, Father. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to bless it make it significant. And that's a little tiny reflection of what our lives ought to be like in miniature. I'm working hard, okay, but I'm depending on the Father. And just think about this, guys. Think about the gospel for just a second. The foundation of our whole life and eternity is this, that I'm depending on the life of another. I'm not depending on myself. I have to be humble. I have to give thanks. I have to live in hope. Okay? I mean, so great a salvation should never lead to presumption, but neither should it ever lead to pride. It should never lead to legalism. It's all up to me. Neither should it lead to abusing grace and saying, it didn't matter what I do. There should be this beautiful blend of dependence and obedience that we see modeled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father accomplished our salvation. He kept His word, even though it cost Him dearly, the blood of His own Son. Okay, Because He's done that, there should just be huge hope in our heart that launches us forward, bold in our soul. Came across this prayer. Supposedly, Queen Elizabeth prayed at some point. Look upon the wound of thy hands and forsake not the work of your hands. Lord Jesus, make us all into people of prayer, proactive dependence. Make us all into people who do our part, who praise you, who worship you, who work for you. But we do all of that in dependence, 
in a clinging, desperate kind of dependence, if you don't show up and bless the work of our hands, it'll all be for naught. It'll all be wasted. We look to you. We trust in you. We hope in you. We praise you for your past faithfulness. We hope in you for your future faithfulness. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. 